0: Pray with me. Lord, your word is perfect and we are not. And so as we open it, uh, open your great gift to us, we ask that you would teach us and instruct us in the way we should go. Teach us to trust you. But point us most of all to the great hope that we have in trusting our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. We're continuing this morning in our study of the Psalms, and so I invite you to open up your Bibles with mine to Psalm 16. That's page 453. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David. And it is a psalm of trust. It teaches us how and why we should trust God. Now, trusting God seems pretty basic to us, doesn't it? I would dare say that many of us in this room, in this church, have grown up either in church or at least around church culture. So that the topic of trusting God with our lives seems almost second nature to us. But sometimes trusting God is easier said than done. I wonder if you've heard the story about when the famous ethicist John Kavanaugh visited Mother Teresa in India. He was spending three months in Calcutta uh, assisting Mother Teresa in, assist in a caring for the sick. And uh, he was hoping to gain through this experience clarity on what he should do with the rest of his life. And upon his arrival, upon meeting Mother Teresa, he sort of instinctively asked her to pray for him. And she said, what do you want me to pray for you for? And he said, pray that I have clarity. And Mother Teresa responded, No, no, I will not do that. Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. I have never had clarity, she said. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Trusting God can be difficult. But I want us to be assured from Psalm 16 that because God holds our lives securely, we can trust him fully. Because God holds our lives securely in his hands, we can trust God fully. Listen to God's word from Psalm 16. David writes, Preserve me, O God. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalm begins, as you may have noticed, with a cry for help. In verse 1, David prays, Preserve me, or protect me, O God. David was in danger. We don't know the specific kind of danger that David was in, but as the psalm unfolds, we discover that David feared for his very life. And the prayer he lifts up for himself in verse 1 is remarkably short. It's only seven words in the Hebrew. Nothing impressive. And it contains only one request Preserve me. Protect me. But what makes David's prayer so instructive for us this morning is not so much the request he makes. But the basis on which he makes his request. He prays, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Or as the King James Version phrases it, For in thee do I put my trust. So David gives God a reason to preserve him, a reason to protect him. And what is that reason? He trusts him. David trusted God fully. But what exactly does trusting God entail? When God invites us to trust him fully, what exactly is he calling us to do? What does it look like? David answers that question for us in this psalm. In the remainder of the psalm, David demonstrates for us Three ways in which we are to trust God. Three ways in which we are to trust God. And the first way is found in verses 2 through 4. In verses 2 through 4, David teaches us that we are to trust God by being committed to him. By being committed to him. And in verse 2, we see that we are to demonstrate our commitment to God. By confessing our faith in Him. And David breaks this confession of faith up into two parts. First, we see that we are to confess our submission to God. Our submission to God. David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, if you're following along with me in the text, you'll notice that David uses the word Lord twice in this verse but that our English translations present those two usages to us differently. The first usage of the word Lord is in all caps. You see that? And it refers both here and elsewhere in the Old Testament to the special covenant name of the God of Israel. We might know that name more readily as Jehovah, the one true God. But then you'll notice that the second usage of the word Lord in this verse is in lower case, which refers simply to the title master. So David was confessing that God and God alone was his master. And you and I need to realize that when we refer to God as our Lord, whether as a public profession of faith, or even in our simple daily prayers, we are giving him a title of uncontested authority. In the New Testament, we read that one of the first creeds in the early church was the simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. But to confess this creed was to invite persecution. Because in saying that Jesus was Lord was to indicate in the strongest of terms that Caesar was not. And in the same way, when we call Jesus our Lord, we aren't just giving him some fancy religious title. No, we're saying in the strongest of terms that he is the supreme ruler of our lives, not us. We're giving all authority to him when we call him Lord. We're pledging all our obedience to him. We're declaring that we are submitted to him. But there's a second confession we must make. Not only are we to confess our submission to God, we're to confess our dependence on God. Notice how David expressed his dependence on God. He confessed to him, I have no good apart from you. David recognized that all his happiness, all his well-being came from God and no other source. He was completely dependent on God for everything. Have you ever stopped to realize just how dependent you are on God? We can fool ourselves, can't we, into thinking that, we provide for ourselves. Why do we even pray that prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. I provide for myself. David says no. In a world full of rivals, God wants us to trust him as our God and our good. Our hearts instinctively attach themselves to those things in life that make us happy, don't they? Our jobs our spouse, our career, our children, our hobbies. But if we look to any of those things or people to make us ultimately happy, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Because God has made us for himself. And as St. Augustine so eloquently put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. You and I are completely dependent on God. There's another way that we're to demonstrate our commitment to God. In verse 3, we find that we are to demonstrate our commitment to God by delighting in his people. David says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The word saints in this verse doesn't need to confuse us. David is simply referring to his fellow faithful worshipers of God. And how does David feel about them? Does he dread gathering with them? Does he hold them at arm's length? Does he merely tolerate them? No, he delights in them. For David, one's commitment to God is displayed through one's commitment to God's people. So, friends, I'll put it very simply for us. To tell God that we love him and then to consistently neglect meeting together on Sunday mornings is to give God a very mixed message. I delight in your people, but I'll show up half the time. Something's wrong. I was having a wonderful conversation yesterday. It wasn't planned at all. With a church member from here. <clears throat> and they're expecting guests to come in. Uh, guests that they haven't seen in a long while, a, a young couple that's coming to stay with them. And the the man's words were, "I can't wait to see them. They are just a delight." And I thought, "He said delight. What did you say? They are just a delight." I said, Perfect. That's the kind of attitude that God creates when He saves us. He binds us to Himself and He binds us to others. He causes us to delight in Him by delighting in His people. But there's a flip side to delighting in God's people. Verse 4 gives us the necessary consequence of our commitment to God and His people. We are to reject evil. David declares in verse 4 The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Here, David makes the general observation that those who desert the one true God and follow false gods instead will be sorely disappointed. When crisis hits, these people will cry out to their newfound false gods and nothing will happen. These gods are powerless to save them because they don't exist. Now, David was referring in this verse to the worship of idols, which was more prevalent in his day than in ours, we could say, at least in our culture. But false gods are just as prevalent today as in David's day, I'm reminded of a story that an American pastor has told regarding uh, a recent trip he took to India, eastern India, the rural parts. And as he was walking in the countryside, uh, he was overwhelmed with the amount of shrines and altars that just littered the hills as far as the eye could see. And he stopped to talk to one of the local women of these rural villages. And he asked her, just in conversation, if she had ever considered visiting America. And she said, I did once, and I'll never do it again. I just can't stomach the idolatry. The pastor was a little bit confused, but more so offended, and asked her what she meant. And he probably would have wished he didn't. She said... Your God is your stomach with your restaurants everywhere. Your God is your sports teams, and you build multi-million dollar stadiums to house them. Your God is your television, and all the chairs in your homes are lined up so that you and your family can gather around the altar and worship that God. So you see, we have false gods all around us in endless supply. And each of them vies with God for our attention, for our affection. But you and I are to live in such a way that demonstrates a single-minded comind- single commitment to the one true God, to tie all our happiness and well-being To anything else is to guarantee the deepest disappointment imaginable. Both in this life and the life to come. This is the kind of trust to which God responds. It's a trust that reveals our commitment to God in word and in deed. It's a trust that relies on God for all our safety and our refuge. We trust in God by being committed to him. But in verses 5 through 8, David tells us of another way we are to trust God. He teaches us that we are to trust God not only by being committed to him, but by being content with him. Being content with God. As one who's still somewhat new to fatherhood, I find myself being surprised more and more at just how easily pleased children are. My 18-month-old daughter, Audrey, has just learned to say, uh, uh, scream, uh, the word sit. And even more than that, Audrey loves to sit physically more than any other child I know. Uh, Many times it seems that her favorite thing to do in the world is to sit on our fireplace hearth and scream the word sit until I come and sit by her. And when I finally comply, which Dads, you know I always do. Um, She glows and grins from ear to ear. And we just sit there. And on a really good day, uh, Mommy will be convinced too. She'll be sitting by Daddy and Mommy. And that's a cute character trait of my daughter Audrey. But what I love about it the most is the way it expresses her feeling toward me. She is content with Daddy. Amidst all the toys and puzzles and stuffed animals, which are probably at this very hour still strewn around our living room floor, she's content with daddy. Daddy is her most treasured possession. And we see in verses 5 and 6 that we are to feel much the same way about God. God is to be our most treasured possession. David tells us in verses five and six, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David's language here is filled with references to land inheritance. To inherit a piece of land, a portion of land in David's day, would be something like inheriting a very lucrative business in our day. Land was a um, a life-sustaining possession. The better the land, the wealthier the owner. But David declares that his true satisfaction was in God himself. John Piper's adage is certainly true. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And what that means is that the more we enjoy being with God Himself, not just for the things He gives us, but with God Himself, the more we enjoy Him and savor Him and delight in Him, the more praise He receives and the more He enjoys that praise. God is most glorified in us. When we are most satisfied in Him, God is to be our most treasured possession. But how can we show this? How can we show God that He is our most treasured possession? Well, one of the ways we demonstrate our love for God is by heeding His counsel. Didn't our Lord Jesus say, If you love me, you'll obey my commandments? And in verse 7, David exclaims with praise, I bless the Lord. That's what the word bless means. It means to thank God publicly. I bless the Lord. He gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. For David, night was the time for prayer. All of Jerusalem could be asleep. But the king most certainly was awake reminds me of the way in which Hudson Taylor, uh, the great missionary to China in the 1800s, made time in his busy schedule for prayer and study. Listen to Hudson Taylor's son's own words about his father's practice of prayer. After sleep at last had brought a measure of quiet, we would hear a match struck and see the flicker of candlelight which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible in two volumes, always at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to prayer, the time when he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. E.M. Bounds, in his book on prayer, has encouraged his readers to give their very best hours to God, The hours when the coffee's pumping. The hours when you are least likely to be disturbed. What do you do with it? Look at those time schedules and you'll see what you delight in. Hudson Taylor, this is is the picture of contentment, isn't it? When God is our most treasured possession, we will be content just to sit at his feet and listen to his instruction. Are we content in him? Or do we doubt his ability to satisfy us completely? And do we run to other things? To truly trust God means to find all our contentment and satisfaction in him. But there's one more way this psalm shows us that we are to trust God. In verses 8 through 11... David teaches us that we are to trust God by being confident in Him. By being confident in Him. In verse 8, we see that we are to rejoice in God's protection. David declares, I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. When we put our trust fully in God, fully in God, He becomes our right hand man our protector, our defender. And as you and I arm ourselves with God himself, we are able to face even the grimmest of life situations with joy and peace. So David writes in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. David is completely confident in God. And notice that David is confident not only in God's ability to protect his soul, but to protect his body, too. He, he Doesn't he just write, my flesh also dwells secure. And David continues to declare his confidence in verse 10. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Which is a Hebrew term for the grave. Or let your holy one see corruption. But it's here where we might scratch our heads. And wonder whether David's. Confidence may have led him into a little bit of wishful thinking. After all, David, he he died, didn't he? And the scriptures seem unashamed by this. David died, just like everyone else. His body was buried and saw corruption. It rotted, it decayed in a tomb. Doesn't get much uglier than that. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter informs us that in this verse, David was not talking about himself. David was talking about Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. That's page 910. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is delivering his Pentecost sermon to an audience of Jews, and he is announcing to them that Jesus had risen from the dead. And interestingly... The heart of Peter's sermon consists of an explanation of Psalm 16. Notice how Peter quotes Psalm 16 at length in verses 25 and following of Acts chapter 2. Peter says, For David says concerning him, that is concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, the grave, or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter explains to his listeners in the very next paragraph the true meaning and fulfillment of of Psalm 16, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And then Peter concludes, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So you see that the basis of David's confidence in Psalm 16 was Jesus Christ. Because God would rescue Jesus from death, David could be confident that God would rescue him too. And brothers and sisters, you and I have the same, the very same promise before us this morning. If we put our confidence in anyone or anything else, we will be disappointed. But if we put our confidence solely in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. That's the important part. We can be certain that God will never abandon us. And not only will God never abandon us, He will give us infinitely more than we deserve. We see in our final verse, verse 11, that God will bombard us with blessing forever. David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we trust in Christ, God does not give us what we deserve. Instead of death, we receive eternal life to the fullest. Instead of condemnation, we receive God's acceptance to the max. And even more, God promises to make us happier and happier and happier for all eternity. Not by giving us cheap joys that last only for a moment and then lose their steam. But by giving us the greatest and longest lasting joy imaginable. Himself. Christians. Should be happy. That was the simple thesis of Jonathan Edwards' first sermon titled Christian Happiness. He was 18 years old, (laughs) but the three points of his sermon were some of the most powerful truths ever spoken. Our bad things will turn out for good, our good things can never be taken away. And the best things are yet to come. Trusting in God brings us unending happiness. Friend, are you trusting in God to make you totally happy? Have you said to the Lord Jesus, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What are you trusting in? Whatever it is, whatever it is, it will be taken away from you. But when you put your trust in God and in his Christ, when you set him at your right hand, he promises to set you at his right hand forever and ever and ever. Our hearts are restless Until they find their rest in him. So come and rest. Come and trust. Come and take refuge in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the strong refuge, the impenetrable shield. That you have provided for us in Christ. Because he is at our right hand. And perhaps even more. Because we are at his right hand. We cannot be shaken. Give us this confidence. Instill within us this unshakable trust in you. That as Spurgeon said. When the waves of life hit us. We will learn to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Help us to trust you with all our hearts, without reserve, and help us to tap into that eternal joy now as we find all our contentment and satisfaction in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.